Welcome to Being the Dot. I am your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, I invite a guest to share their experiences of being a person of color in white spaces. Right around the time of the George Floyd civil unrest, I noticed that I was talking with more and more African-Americans who were exploring the possibility of gun ownership. And what I've come to find out from the Pew Research Center is that the highest overall sales increase from Black men and Black women show a 58.2% increase in purchases during the first six months of 2020 versus the same period of the year previous. So something is up. And I want to talk about that today in the episode that I'm talking, um, naming Black and Packing, or it might be Black Man with a Gun, because our guest today is absolutely an expert in this, and I am excited to have this conversation. What you can't see that I can see, um, listeners, is that right behind him is one of those silhouettes that you use when you go uh, target practicing, and so he really is the Black Man with a Gun. Reverend Ken Blanchard has had that URL since 1999, blackmanwithagun.com. He's a gun rights advocate that has lobbied the U.S. Congress for the rights of all gun owners. The ordained Baptist pastor has testified in the state legislatures of Virginia, Texas, South Carolina, Michigan, Maryland, and Wisconsin. He's a former U.S. Marine, federal police officer, arms trainer in the CIA, a national security intel analyst, and is known, as I said earlier, as the Black Man with a Gun. He's been podcasting since 2007 and currently hosts three wildly popular podcasts, Black Man with a Gun, Speak Life, and Indian Motorcycle Radio. He has been featured in four documentaries and has authored several books and is still a conscientious resource in the gun community. Daughters, please welcome to the podcast, Reverend Ken Blanchard. Woo! So glad that you're here. Thank you, Dr. Stacy. Appreciate the invitation. You bet. So tell us, just start with at the beginning, tell us a little bit about your journey to gun ownership. For me, I was a country boy um, growing up in Tidewater, Virginia. Oh, I went to Norfolk State. Oorah. And uh, <laughs> grandma was the first gun owner that I ever knew. Mm. And I didn't know it was a bad thing because grandma saved my life once with a shotgun. Um, mm. And it's like a legendary thing in my family. The um, We lived near a swamp. We lived in the same area that Nat Turner ran loose trying to escape in Dismal Swamp of Virginia. It's like really close to the North Carolina border. And it's swamps everywhere. That's where my playground was. So I was playing in this swamp and a water moccasin came out to sun himself and I had never seen a snake this big before and they are pretty aggressive um they came he came out of the water bared his cotton mouth and I froze I didn't know what to do um I had seen plenty of little snakes but this thing was huge and I hollered for my grandmother and I heard her say boy what do you want and I just said snake and grandma opened the screen door and it's a good I don't know 50 yards away and she opened the door, looked at me, and then went back in the house. And I thought, no, Grandma, come back. Come back. Grandma's a snake out here. And she came back out with a shotgun. And I thought, oh, no, Grandma's old. She, she might miss. She was she was walking 
and loading and and pulling a gun up to her shoulder and before, all at the same all yes. at the same time. I love it. I love before it. Before I knew it, I heard a blast and I seen the, the snake turning the bits at my feet. Mm. And then she just walked, turned back around and went back in the house and did whatever she was doing. And I was sitting with my mouth open going, wow. <laughs> um, so my, my first hero was grandma. And when my mother and we all moved to um to Maryland, to the nation's capital, and she got married and we all got civilized. The whole gun thing kind of went away, except for I was the kid that if you wanted to get me something for Christmas, it either was a robot, a robot or a gun. And mm. and back in the 60s, every superhero had a gun. Every spy movie had a gun. Uh, you could tell the movie by the gun. Uh, every Western, there was a gun. Each each spy person had their own from, from man from uncle to James Bond. You could name the gun. So that was what I had for Christmas. And it was not a a violent thing. It was just, I was just trying to be a hero. Um, and then when I grew up, my family is super athletic and I am not. Um, so little Kenny was not the basketball star that his mother was. Um, little Kenny was not the baseball star that his dad was. And we had all these cousins that are just making it through. One got to the NBA, one got to the um, NFL and what's wrong with you? Well, I'm in the books. So, that's okay. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the educated one in the family. But I had this stigma from low self-esteem issues. So I enlisted into the Marine Corps because I'm gonna prove everybody wrong mm-hmm. that I that I'm I'm tough, that I can make it. And it was there that I learned that I had a talent that I didn't think was a talent. Uh nobody talked about marksmanship in our community for the most part. So the fact that I could shoot well, no big deal. But my peers loved it. So as I matriculated through the Marine Corps, did really well, got out, um, actually had some weird things happen to me. Like I actually survived um, a kidnapping attempt. And the next thing I know, I'm working for the government. And the government said, well, we're going to just teach you some stuff. Whatever you kind of move toward, that's where you go. And I became one of the first African-American firearms instructors for the Central Intelligence Agency. Wow. And they mm-hmm. sent me to like fabulous schools. I mean, I had teachers that were competition shooters. I had teachers from each branch of the military. And my job was to train the trainer. So after I was taught, I'm going to teach other people. And I got like really fired up because now I was like mythical with these firearms. And mm-hmm. I, I had a I had an armory that looked like the Matrix. I had guns from all over the world. I could shoot anything. But mm-hmm. really couldn't tell anybody. So I thought, all right, how about if I start my own business teaching my community about gun mm-hmm. safety? Mm-hmm. Uh, the entrepreneurial bug hit me real hard. And I ran out, started my little thing. And that's when I found out that the world wasn't ready for it yet. Um, mm-hmm. I got beat up really, really bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, I was too young. Um, two, I didn't know about the history of gun control in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and if you leave the country, the firearms education goes away too. There's like a whole bunch, there's a, there's a huge void there where nobody talks about guns. Even though there might be guns home, nobody's mm-hmm. going to talk about it because that's not what, what, what good kids do. And um, mm-hmm. the fact that I was saying that maybe I could start an Olympic team. Maybe I could, I mean, I had dreams. So I was just going to go for it. And I got shut down at every interval. Um, mm-hmm. And it began my journey. Um, when I 
started failing over and over again, I decided to figure out what's the best way to uh, to get over this hurdle. Who is in the guns and doing it right? Mm-hmm. And um, at the range, somebody says, well, the NRA is always doing this. And I thought, well, the NRA, I thought they were like a racist group or something. I wasn't, mm-hmm. wasn't a part of them. So let me go infiltrate the, one of their one of their meetings because they usually have a, a board meeting in Arlington, Virginia. So I'll just, uh, I'll just uh-huh. go one day and I'll, I'll wear my, my jeans and my cowboy boots. I'm going to sneak in the side and see what these guys are talking about. I walk. I walk. No, Blanchard, can I just pop, sure. stop you for a second? Because I think that you said something that was really salient. You said that guns were a part of your life in the South, but as you grew up, that things became more civilized and that you saw the NRA as more of, at that time at least, a racist organization. I wonder if you can unpack that for us a little bit. Sure. There's there's a, guns are tools in the South. And mm-hmm. I've, I've learned over these last 20 years of, of study that when we did the great migration and left the plantation and left the um, tenant farms, we wanted to be as citizen led civilized as possible. We even dogged, mm-hmm. we even dogged the music of the blues because we said it was too country Our our for a long time, black people wouldn't even acknowledge blues music because it was from the, it was too far back. It was back in the day. They wanted the new stuff. And our gun education went with that too. The only negative is the the deal with protecting yourself is still real. The deal for having a right to own a farm is still real. And mm-hmm. we, we had this dichotomy of going on where we ever we had um veterans who would serve in World War One, two, Korea, and they would bring their guns back. But because they lived in the city now, the mothers who are um the survivors of all the stuff that we've gone through and know that the history of gun control would mean that if a black male was found with a firearm, a bullet even in their person, they could be snatched out by a posse and hung. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. mama said, no guns in my house. Didn't mm-hmm. even didn't even know why. Didn't care that we had the right to. Didn't mm-hmm. care that he had been trained in the military. No guns in my house. Mm-hmm. So that was like the thing that happened in the city. And it became like something that was passed down because mm-hmm. you want your son to make it. You didn't want your son to get snatched by the police, get snatched by a mob. Um, and this kind of like um, our traditions and our culture have been handed down. And and but what it sounds like what you believe is what has gotten lost in that is this notion of protection as well. There was always that uncle that bucked the system in every family. Mm-hmm. He might have been uh, Big Mama's younger brother or whatever, but he was always that one uncle that still hunted. It was always that one uncle that if somebody in their family got lost, that they were going to go find that one uncle. Almost every family had that same uncle that was a little bit on the edge. Uh, and that joker had a gun. You know, he did. And, and he was like the enforcer of the family. Big mama might be the one who laid down all the laws and, and kept track of everybody. But we always had that one uncle that, that was allowed to be um, on the edge. Um, mm-hmm. And I started looking for that uncle because it was more of them. Um, and they were like brothers undercover uh, with yeah. their firearms. And some of the times we had trouble in our communities was because that uncle wouldn't secure his firearm. He might mm-hmm. hide it in a mattress. He might hide it in mm-hmm. his closet. And the teenagers of the house find the gun. The gun gets put out in the street. Some other big kids snatch the gun from him. And because that gun was never registered, 
the right way, was never locked the right way. It was never going to be argued that it was missing. Mm -hmm. So we perpetuated this thing of our own miseducation, kept things from happening, kept kept us from getting shot, kept us from being killed. Uh, we had children that would not know about gun safety because they hadn't been trained in the home because mm -hmm. it was illegal in our household. It was, mm -hmm. um, and it was not illegal. It was just illegal in our in our area. So we perpetuated some of our own issues. Sure. Well, and and I I would even. Um think that there also is a part of the dominant narrative that says it is not safe for black people to own guns that 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 um it is possible that white folks had some trouble with that as they think about as they think about dominating um black and brown folks again i have to go back to my grandmother i remember i used to spend all my summers with her all my long winter breaks even mm -hmm. though we lived in dc as soon as there was a time to get travel I would jump on a bus and ride by myself back to the sticks to be with my grandparents. Mm -hmm. It was like going back in time, um, but I didn't mm -hmm. mind. And my sisters, as they grew up, they left me alone. They were like, we're not going back there. It isn't like not even running water. Um, there's, it was running water, but it was no bathroom. It was, mm -hmm. it was definitely look, going back in the, in the forties. And, um, and I got used to living like that with my grandparents. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that happened once was I watched um, some hunters who were coming through the area chasing deer and they had dogs. Um, these were armed white men in a hunting club and they passed through my grandmother's property. And I remember them come and you can hear everything in the country because the, the walls are paper sure. thin and um, grandma grabbed that same shotgun and moved it toward the door. Um, and she had like one hand on the right, on the rifle, I mean on the shotgun barrel and she unlocked the door and, and they said, Hey, Miss Mary, uh, we just want to let you know, that uh, we're coming through your property and if we catch anything, we'll bring you something. She's like, I appreciate that. I'm looking forward to it. Cause y'all know you guys do well. And I watched grandma be a diplomat at the same time, protecting us. I mean, like no, nobody knew that if they pushed their way into that house for any reason whatsoever, they wouldn't get the end of that, that shotgun. And sure, sure. she had control. And, I, and, I, and that little lesson stay with me. Like you can be, deaconess of the church you can be the mother of the church <laughs> but don't mess with my kids so I, I i learned that you can be a good guy with a firearm for my grandmother <laughs> so it, it sounds like that initially as you were kind of exploring this part of yourself that you were having trouble finding kinship in the black community and so um and so you move towards a more majority space where you were the dot yeah. meaning the NRA. So so tell our listeners a little bit about that experience and what that was like for you at first meeting in Arlington and then subsequently. I can get me, me back a little further. When I first got started and got fired up about what I was going to do and I was going to become, because I, I, I realized that nobody had talked about firearms in a black community since 1968. The last mm. book that I saw was Negroes with Guns by Robert Irv Williams. So I thought, all right, how about if I update this thing? How about I write my own book? Because I always wanted to be a writer. Um, how about I write my own book about black man with a gun? And it'll be like an homage to Robert F. Williams. Mm -hmm. So I was working now at this part time. I was working as a, um, a janitor in a, in a large church in D.C. And when I'd come in in the evening, I'd start on my book. And they were like, hey, what are you doing? It's like, I'm, I'm writing this book about gun ownership. And the church people were like, guns. Oh, but it's a book, so it's okay. And then as the book got published, 
they were like, this is about guns. So, so the whole thing about you being an author and you fin- getting something done kind of got overshadowed. And the fact that I'd been in this church too, for now, like a year and a half and they knew, mm-hmm. who, knew how I was, the fact that I was being a gun person was overshadowing everything. Mm-hmm. And, then, mm-hmm. then, and then I watched as I was trying to get my book into um, African-American stores. They got, got shunned for that too. Mm-hmm. They might have, they had a book about uh, a drug dealer that had killed people. And I think the title was monster. And they were prominently posing that thing up on the front of the thing. But I had a book about responsible gun ownership. They didn't want to have it. They said, we don't want to promote mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. I remember getting a note from Oprah and, um, I got excited because Oprah had a book club back then. This was like 2002. Sure. I'm like, oh man, if I get this book on Oprah, I can save lives. I can put this in every hand, every every black person in the city, blah, blah, blah. And about a week, no, it was a week. It was a good six weeks later. I got a note back from Oprah's people that said, oh, no, this is not something we want to do. And I was crushed. Mm. Um, I, I Nothing hurts worse than when your family doesn't acknowledge you or mm-hmm. or kind of take it take up arm so we go to this nra meeting dressed down well my normal dress actually i walked into a room of tuxedo who is, who is we who is we rep uh we're talking like it's just me myself and i <laughs> <laughs> my bad you really are a baptist minister aren't yeah you? i know right me and the holy ghost we walked into this joint <laughs> and uh I, they all had tuxedos on. I was the only guy in there with jeans. I had totally misread the room. I didn't know my audience. And they said, this is a national um, board meeting, and we meet here every year. But you're welcome. Uh, who are you? And I said, uh, my name is Ken Blanchard, and I am a firearms instructor. I live in this area. And they're like, what? This is great. I'm thinking, why? They said, do you see any other African-American people in here? And I was like, well, not just the waiters right there. That's about it. That's exactly he said, so we are so glad you're here and let me know how we can help you. And I thought, mm-hmm, my trust is about this much. Um, mm. So let me just listen here. So you're in this room with uh, white guys dressed in tuxedos. You're dressed down. Yes. The topic is gun ownership. That's some being the dot stuff right there. That's the <laughs> chipping the cookie, the raisin in the milk, all of that. I was suspect. I thought, all right, let me, let me just <laughs> see how this is going to play out. And mm-hmm. Three guys in particular pulled me to the side. And one guy said, well, look, there's a lot of media here and they're going to be scanning the room. And if they see you, they're going to make a beeline for you for sure. Um, but because you're not dressed, they're going to paint you as a bubble, as, as just being um, one of those crazed people that are into guns. So so be wary of that. And I was like, Check this dude out. I'm take on trying to protect, protect me. You don't even know who I am. And then, mm. then the next guy, he says, Look, "Have you ever heard of Doctor Ozzy and Sweet?" And I thought, "No, I haven't." And then another guy's like, "Oh, let me tell him. Do you, do you know about the Deacons for Defense and Justice?" I was like, "No, I've never heard of the Deacons for." The-. He's about you're a preacher. No, I wasn't even in ministry then. He says, "You're in you're in, you're in the church. You work in the church." You told us, and I said, "Yeah." He says, "Never heard of the Deacons for Defense?" And I was like, "No." Well, tell you what, next week we're having this dinner at the Safari Club International. Um, You're invited. You can sit at our table and blah, blah, blah. And I got like all these details and I thought, okay, I will be back. He says, so what's the name of your company again? 
And because they basically told me that there didn't exist a black entity in this thing, I said, my company's called um, African-American Arms and Instruction. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great right there. So I ran out and got business cards made, and uh, A3I was born. Um, so when I got to the next Safari International with the right suit on, um, I was sitting at the head table with Wayne LaPierre, who's still the head of the NRA. I was I was with some senators, and I was the poorest guy at the table. And mm-hmm. you wouldn't have known it, though, because I was like the, the feature, the spot. You know, I was like, mm-hmm. I was the cool dude. Everybody wanted to be with me. Everybody wanted to talk to me. Everybody wanted to get my insight. It was the weirdest feeling mm-hmm. of not being loved for like 30 years. And then now you in. It's like, mm-hmm. You're almost a unicorn. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. To- mm-hmm. Totally. And it never stopped. Um, mm. They never let me down. Um, never. I, I've seen. I've seen the inside. I've been. Sure. I've been with them for a minute. And I've I've watched them do some stupid stuff. Like when a black person gets in trouble and they don't say anything and I'm like right there with a phone call and they're like, I know. But do you understand? And then I get the whole, I get the excuse. I get stuff that never makes the news. I mean, they're like, say, well, truth be told, legally, we don't know all the the background and we don't want to get sued. Everything is driven by money and image and and they're, they have constituents, I learned this later, that are so fanatical about supporting them that they basically pander to them um, mm-hmm. to keep the rent paid, to keep their salaries up. And mm-hmm. uh, and they know stuff is wrong, but it's money. So mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. it goes. So what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about gun ownership among um, black and brown folks? Well, the good news is um, in the last two or three years, the Internet has blown that thing wide open. I mean, there's no secrets anymore. It's before if you wanted to hide something, you put it between the pages of a book. Um, Now, in the information age, um, when I talk about the Deacons of Defense and Justice or Dr. Ozzie and Sweet, Folks can do a Google search of it and be mystified like I was back then. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had to ask an uncle, you ever heard of the Diggins of Defense in North Carolina? And they're like, oh, yeah, and Mississippi and Texas. Um, and Dr. Ozzie and Sweet was basically the same story of Raisin in the Sun, you know, that great mm-hmm. play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was that story with a gun. Mm-hmm. You, had a, you had a doctor and his family move into a, a rich neighborhood in Michigan and they started like throwing rocks and it was going to burn his house down. And he got his family together with firearms and shot back and them juggers lay They left and, mm-hmm. and um, the cops pulled him out of the, out of the house and arrested him. Um, and the community got around him and got him back out. Mm-hmm. But it was basically, that was, that was the story. And mm-hmm. I, I had never heard of Dr. Ozzie and sweet before. Um, so our people, um, now, because of Instagram, social media has done some wonders that I didn't mm-hmm. have when I first started in 1999. Um, I've been riding this podcasting train for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and using, Since 2007, that's yeah, 10 years, 15, close to? Yeah. I guess my math isn't that good. Yeah, but, we're, we're yeah. hitting on our 13th year for that. And uh-huh. um, I thought I've said everything that needs to be said. 
mm-hmm. about firearms and black people and ownership, but there's a whole nother generation that just found me. And um, sure. right when I'm trying to quit, they're trying to pull me back in. Come back. It's like, dude, I'm like the, I'm like Yoda in this thing. There's a whole bunch of other <laughs> Jedi out here. So, sure. What is the deacons of defense? Deacons of defense and justice were um, members of, of several churches. They were all veterans from World War II and Korea mm-hmm. that were armed. I mean, they were they were soldiers, veterans. They had brought their guns back. And especially during the voting rights um, struggle in the civil rights era, when, mm. when King went down, here's a story that hardly nobody knows. When King was doing his nonviolent things in the South, they would have to, nobody, they couldn't have enough room for everybody. So some people were camped out. And mm. knowing that the Klan and uh, the rest of the, the unruly folks that want to kill black people and the white people who were helping them, um, they had to have armed guards to protect them at night. King did not mm-hmm. want that in, in the daylight because the media would, it would cancel out his whole nonviolent thing. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but the practicality of it was you guys can work, you can operate, you can protect our people at night from the marauders, from the, from the demons out here. And uh, back then the day, when the NRA wasn't as political it was, some of these soldiers, former these veterans, needed ammo, which the um, gun stores wouldn't give them. But the NRA had stores of military ammo back in the day. So there's actually some people who got their ammo from the NRA, uh, from their different media outlets, not media outlets, but their armories, for these black people to, to help um, people crazy just like... Um, not crazy, but famous, like uh, Charlton Heston. Was mm. He was big during the civil rights. And, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he put his whole career on the line, marching with King and going, mm-hmm. uh, going against the status quo. When he became the president of the NRA for a, a long stretch, mm-hmm. it's right when I got in there and I got a chance to talk to him and meet him. And uh, that guy, to this day, he's probably my, I get the most fan- fandom from i mean you know how you get like all hyped up when you meet somebody famous um sure because he was so real um and then getting little christmas cards from afterwards didn't didn't hurt neither um i, mm-hmm. I feel like i had a, like a real friend that was famous but that was like mm-hmm. the beginning of it so what what could you could you say more about um what leads you to believe that it's important that gun ownership is important for black and brown people oh firearms are not magical but they are tools Mm -hmm. and no matter whether you live in a city the country or the suburbs if you have to deal with people you need a tool that can defend your family as as soon as you become an owner of something um there's somebody else that's thinking they should take it from you and Mm -hmm. these days it's not a nice take. It's not like I'm just going to take it from you when you sleep. Um, folks, mm-hmm. folks will actually barge into your house and try to hurt you, try to hurt your mm-hmm. family. And you need this tool like a fire extinguisher. You hoping the fire don't happen, but mm-hmm. it's better to have it and not use it than not mm-hmm. have it at all and need it. Um, and there's also some therapy with um, with shooting. There's there's gifts that we have. Like I didn't know that I was not by myself, that there are plenty of black people with guns that can shoot real well. And there needs to be more competition shooters. 
Um, you can, you don't have to be seeing my family. I was only six foot tall and I'm like the short guy and we got basketball players and football players. And I thought if I couldn't dunk a football uh, basketball, that I was no good. I didn't know that seeing the shooting sports, you can be any gender, you can be any size, you can be any age. Um, you just have to have the discipline in your head to be able to master the firearm that you're using. And it can be so much fun um, to, to use that skill. It has nothing to do with um, the, the politics. It's for self-defense. You can, do sure. it, you can do it because you like it. You can do it because you're collecting it. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's nice to know that you have a skill set that you can work on, that you can practice by yourself. You don't have to have a team. It's not a team sport. Um, but you can be, you can make it a team sport. You, mm-hmm. you can get other people just like you and make your own group and do that thing on the weekends. Um, and we're, we've we've excluded ourselves from it from a long time, which now not so much because you can actually see the groups of people on Instagram and Facebook. Sure. Everybody, everybody's showing that they're shooting at the range, and that's like a good right. thing. So, what do you think this surge is about? This this current surge from twenty twenty and um, beyond. Knowledge. Hmm. Knowledge got us off the plantation. Knowledge is making us free now. We're freer now than we ever been. Um, the, mm-hmm. the bad part is with freedom comes responsibility. With freedom comes um, you have to do something with what you learned. And sometimes mm-hmm. we waste it. So that's that's what's going on. So do you think that racism plays a role in that at all? And kind of the surge of hate bias incidences plays a role in the surge with African-American ownership? Oh, yeah. Fear is behind a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. Folks might buy a gun because they just bought a house and they're afraid of a burglar. They buy a gun because it was a burglary or robbery or somebody was murdered in their neighborhood. But mm-hmm. it can go a whole lot further than, than fear. I mean, you can, mm-hmm. after you get past the, all right, I got the firearm. Now what? It's just sitting in my closet. It's just sitting in my mm-hmm. safe. Mm-hmm. Now what I do with this thing? So mm-hmm. fear might've started it, but it doesn't have to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. So I have one friend who said, who's been saying for years that there would be gun control, more gun control, if black people started to apply for gun licenses at a high rate, that they would find a way to control it. And so she that and so she decided that she was um she was talking that but not doing anything about it. And so she decided to get a firearm for that reason. And so there's fear and then there's this is kind of Political piece, I guess, I don't know if that's what you call it. Are there other things that you think lead to, and protection, of course, um, are there other things that you think that lead to um, gun ownership and among Black Americans? That fear of missing out, that FOMO, it works for everything. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where mm-hmm. it comes from. And then you have, and also you have people who feed into that fear. Um, we had during that whole Trump era, um, we had people posting stuff, and I think some of it was even foreign governments, posting stuff to make people think that it was going to be a race war any any yep. day now you bet and that, that that made people go crazy because they thought mm-hmm. all right i've been against guns my whole life but i don't want to miss out i don't want to be mm-hmm. left out so let me go to the store and then the mm-hmm. next thing you find out is that there's no guns left i mean right. that's how many guns have been sold. the whole nine yards right that's how many guns have been sold you, you would not believe that they, you can't find a gun now i mean that you go to the gun store and they're like limited you to like one box of ammo and and what's left there is not the best firearms. Um, all the good mm-hmm. stuff is gone. It's just like the, the I don't know, third the third tier 
of firearms are left and people and and the prices are so high nobody knows that you're not buying a good a good thing um it's crazy well it i think that i think you you touching on something that i think is really interesting in this moment in time that we're currently living in is that there is still this kind of heightened um concerns about a race war or that that somehow the storming of the Capitol is going to be localized and in your neighborhood and and, and tiki torches and and I and I'm not I'm not making light of that. I just want to be clear about that. But but I know that that that, that there are people who are sitting with that still and had and that has informed their journey towards a gun gun ownership. Yeah, fear will make you do something, but it won't mm-hmm. sustain you. You can't sustain that fear factor. Um, mm-hmm. What I found out also is that there's nothing new under the sun. As I dove into this history thing, talking about blacks and arms and and us doing things, right now there's a, a new push to stop people from being able to take firearms into state capitals. Um, mm-hmm. And you would think that was new. Um, you would think that that Virginia just did and Washington State just did. Um, I forgot which other state just popped that up. Where like, yeah. They might even be South Carolina that we we can't um, allow anybody to have protests with, with live guns anymore. Well, the very first time that I remember that happening was there was a group called the Black Panther Party. And hmm. in 1967, to protest police brutality and the murder of a black man, the, the Black Panther Party for self-defense um, marched to Sacramento with arms because they said they had the right to. They have the Second Amendment. So they were going to go there and protest. And the governor then, Ronald Reagan, um, saw these armed black men with berets and black leather jackets, terrified him. He ran into the Capitol and they pushed a law called the Mulford Act in 1968 mm-hmm. um, that prohibited people in California from doing that. Um, and you would think that the fear of police brutality in our community, that uh, protesting with a, with a rifle is new. It's been going on all my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but what I wonder is if 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 black and brown people feel like they have the liberty to protest with the gun. They do. Um, they do now. Um, now I mean legally. Yeah, legally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now they do. Now, now it's now because of access to information. Uh, there are more. There are more people of color at the range. There are more people of color at the state houses um, mm-hmm. when there is a protest or a testimony of a mm-hmm. new gun law, the number of people of brown and brown, yellow, and all the, all the kaleidoscope of people um, will blow your mind on how it used to be from when it was when I first started in the nineties. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And how does that feel to you? Oh, how it feels you... good. Uh-huh. Um, that's that's uh-huh. why I'm ready to like, let it go. Um, when I first got started and I was the dot and I thought, I'm just going to keep saying this black man with a gun thing until it's like no longer cool to nobody cares anymore because that's, mm-hmm. that's not how I roll. But it became a thing. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I had to trademark the thing and, and keep it going. But then I tried to like spread it out. And and the gun thing has has changed me. It, it made me move out of my comfort zone. Like I had to talk to people that I had never talked to before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became an ambassador behind the scenes. Um, I helped start a Latin American gun organization and my Spanish mm-hmm. is bad um, but I, I did it anyway and and I would I would go wherever necessary to make sure that um, like my Asian brothers and sisters in 
in LA, they have a, I know a couple guys in the China community that they shoot all together. They have a, a range and a, and a store. And I was mm-hmm. like the link between all these other groups. And I was just mm-hmm. happy that they were getting themselves together. Um, mm-hmm. th- and they would say, well, what do you think about this person? Uh, they're all right. They just don't know how to talk to people. And, and I'd validate people on both sides. Um, so, sure. so, so now that the movement has grown, I'm thinking, all right, Yoda is done. I can, I can go back. And, and play my guitar, and, and I'll be all right. <laughs> so what's your reaction? Uh, what would you say to Black people and brown, yellow, red, who were thinking about getting a gun and managing that, that the the gun ownership with the part of their, um, their racial identity? Okay. Um, the good news is the information is there. Do your research. Um, find out why you want it and then go to a range and experiment see if you can rent a firearm don't buy anything find somebody that you can talk to that can share their experiences with you to like do like a tupperware party that was some of the things that i did when i first got started i would i would have a tupperware party at my house i would bring out all the firearms i had make them safe take the ammo away and i would let people just touch Mm -hmm. them talk about it share experiences Mm -hmm. And then mm-hmm. show them how heavy this thing is. Tell them all the stuff that, that doesn't happen on television. And mm-hmm. and, and it, they got the, the straight scoop from me. And then it's all right. Now we're ready to actually go to the range. And I want you just not to shoot, just to see. Just see what's out here. See how people are acting. And and then we come back. And we'll have like mm-hmm. nice old conversations about, um, well, I saw a guy had a giant gun and I want that. And one person says, that's too big for me. I want to get this. But now you're educated. Now you're actually talking. Um, and I'm, I, I go in further. I'll talk. Let's talk to talk. Let's, let's get some nomenclature down. Let's learn mm-hmm. how, to, how to talk gun. So you don't get ripped off when you go into the store. So the guy won't look at you when you turn the gun around the wrong direction. Um, right. And you'll find out culturally that there were heroes and sheroes in our, in our past that because it wasn't cool, they didn't bring it up. I ask everyone on the podcast this question. What do you want white people to know about making the space, whatever the space is, and, and for, for, for purposes of our conversation, the space is the gun community, more inclusive? The easy answer for that one is that I was shocked as I've been going through this thing that no white person has ever stopped me. No white mm-hmm. person ever not wanted me to be with them on the range. Mm-hmm. They've been trying to get more black people into their clubs. Um, they're awkward about it. They say like some crazy stuff to make you think something else is wrong. Um, it's all about timing. And I, I truly believe that as we get more and more used to each other, because the walls are coming down. That's why there's so much issue right now. When you get confronted with a different culture and you have to, adapt you can't hide um there's some blowback from it but eventually we're going to be on the same sheet of music eventually um i I have optimism of that that someday we'll be to a star trek world where we don't care about the yellow and the blue guy um we'll we'll be the same we can all be a nine forward we'll be happy we haven't got there yet i'm still waiting on it um my my biggest thing i don't think anybody's holding us back but us i think we're the biggest holdbacks um, and it's, it's kind of like a growth thing. Like when we were little, mm-hmm. little kids, um, you always wanted to be, the boys wanted to be over here and the girls were over here. And then as we got a little older, we separated ourselves by race. 
um, because we were more comfortable. And then as we got older, even even older, we started mixing because there was a cute girl of a different race on that side, or there was a, a girl on that side, a guy on that side that I liked, and, and things would move. Um, so as we grow, as we mature, we'll find more common ground than we ever had before. What would, mm-hmm. I, what would I say to a white person who is holding back, um, which I haven't met yet, but I would say the same thing that James Brown said. Um, I don't want nobody to give me nothing. Open the mm. door and I can get it myself. Mm, nice. Well, that right there is a perfect place to end. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me tonight. Um, I, I, I feel like I've learned a little bit about this culture of gun ownership among Black people. And I think that our listeners will find um, your comments very insightful. So thank you. Let me send you one of these. All right. So tell the people where to find you, bro. Um, you can find blackmanwithagun.com. It's been my home since 1999. And you can get my book, um, Black Man With A Gun Reloaded. I redid it in 2014. And it's at Amazon.com. And the podcast? The Black Man With A Gun Show. Still at it. You know, I got a new show coming out um, next week on top of really? the other three. Yeah, this one mm-hmm. is a labor of love. When I first started, before I even got into ministry, and I got beat down for being a preacher with a gun. Let me tell you, that was, I was like the worst. That was worse than anything. Um, mm-hmm. I am doing a show for suicide prevention, for mm-hmm. depression, for all the folks that have been just beat down by life. And I'm going to do a little inspiration, a little spiritual work and it's called if i died tonight i'm 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 kind of riffing off of tupac and uh i'm gonna i'm gonna add some stuff for mental health in this next Mm -hmm. in this next show and you can find it at if i died podcast.com nice and on all podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts you can find those that's wonderful and then stay tuned listeners for the the pie by the time this airs that his podcast will be live and so um, that's wonderful so thank you again for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. You got it, Doc. This episode was edited by Heather Lang. Special thanks to our interns, Amanda Gillette, and other contributors. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by davidsdeliciousdelights.com. davidsdeliciousdelights.com. Custom-made, personalized, Cakes, pies, cookies, and pastries made with a dash of Southern flair. Visit davidsdeliciousdelights.com and use the coupon code BEINGTHEDOT for 20% off orders of $34.99 or more. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.